Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast channel about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Rob Piricelli and in this episode I talk to musician, synthesist and sound designer Richard Barbieri. As part of Japan, Richard Barbieri soon became the thinking person synthesis, famous for his rich and textural electronic backings that beautifully complemented the work of the other band members to forge what is still a unique sound to this day. Richard went on to work on a wide array of projects, some with fellow members of Japan, one of which introduced him to Stephen Wilson. He joined Porcupine Tree in 1993 and, aside from Wilson, is their longest-serving member to this day. After a 12-year hiatus, Porcupine Tree reconvened to write and record Closure Continuation, their 11th and some would say best album to date. I managed to catch up with Richard during rehearsals for the first leg of their tour to support the album and began by asking him about his first exposure to and experience of electronic music. I guess it was the first Roxy Music album. I was a, I was a massive music fan. When, when I was a teenager. And um, okay, in equal parts, I liked progressive rock music and I liked glam. But in both cases, the first time I ever heard synthesizers being used almost as sound design was uh, when I heard what Eno was doing with Roxy Music. And of course, previous to that, I, I wasn't a very good keyboard player and there's no way I would have been able to be part of a band solely as a conventional keyboard player. It just wouldn't have happened. Um, but on hearing what was happening with synthesizers and what, what he was able to do, then that gave me hope and inspiration. Um, and then when I started working with synthesizers, I, I concentrated more on the sounds than I did the playing. So the controls were more important than the keys. And I tried to make one note do lots of things rather than play lots of notes. Um, so I guess that's the first thing. And then I started to kind of look back at the history of electronic music and I started getting into Stockhausen and all kinds of things, Daphne Aurum and, you know. And what, what about your first instrument? You know, how did you then start, how did that manifest, you know, your interest into it then actually, you know, using equipment? Um, it was a Micromoog. It's fantastic. I've still got it. It's just to my, to my left. Um, and I think that came out in about 1976 or 75. Um, and it's a great monosynth, and it actually has really good routing on it. I mean, you can do all kinds of programming tricks with it, um, and I kind of gravitated to that more than I did a Minimoog because I tried one or two in the studio. Um, so that was the first time I started making sounds, and, and at first it was a bit ham-fisted and a bit cheesy. Um, but by the second Japan album, I was starting to kind of create atmospheric sounds and thinking of music in terms of what, what the emotion is and what the, what the kind of meaning is and, and just trying to um, create a vibe rather than playing. Right, yeah, because you've often described yourself as like less of a musician. Yeah. And, and that's obviously something that I guess you, you took from, e or got inspiration from Eno from. I did, but also the fact that I had no training at all and I, I, I have no concept of musical theory. So I'm not... Uh, in a way, that's that's a terrible weakness to have, but also I'm not bogged down by the convention of of how things work necessarily. So um, I might not be able to sit in on many jams in a conventional sense, but I'm coming at it from a different angle because I I don't uh, I'm not I'm not bogged down by the theory and by by the knowledge, let's say. And is that? Um, does that provide a, a sort of balance within, for example, Porcupine Tree, where you've got somebody like Stephen Wilson who clearly is, you know, very well versed in all of that, and so the, the two opposites form a, a whole. Well, actually, the, the the two opposites in Porcupine Tree is Gavin Harrison and, and myself. Stephen claims to be more on my side. He claims to be a non-musician, but he's. He's not going to take that award in the band. No. That's, that's going to be me. And um, Stephen is, is right there in the middle in that he has a musical dialogue with both myself and Gavin. But myself and Gavin are as far apart as we could be. 
And I think that's the strength of Porcupine Tree, and I think that's what makes us sound a bit different. So when, when I get a piece that's maybe written by Stephen and Gavin, when I listen to it, I don't start theorising. I don't, I don't work out the time signatures. I completely ignore the time signatures. I do everything in 4-4 like a good 80s person should do. <laughs> and um, so I start running sequences and running things in 4-4, and suddenly, of course, they're making interesting things with his, with his signatures, which are in like 11, 13, 9. Um, and I don't worry too much about the key and everything. I, I'm, I'm just trying to find interesting harmonically uh, engaging things. So I, I come at it as a non-musician, and I, I think that's for the benefit of the band. Sure. And was that the same in Japan? That that kind of your 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 interaction with the rest of the band? And, I, and the- I think so to a degree. Yeah. I mean, we we were all self-taught. So uh, probably I was more similar to Mick Khan. So Mick Khan had no kind of theory in that sense, but he he had a great ear for uh, for music and and what he came up with was just you know so unique. Um, Steve Jansen was a bit as a drummer was a bit more wary of uh, and knowledgeable about construction of things and 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 uh uh the the kind of science and the mathematics of it but again he he came at it from a different angle and and he's one of the people who influenced gavin harrison so much because gavin couldn't couldn't hear his history you know you can mostly generally you can hear musicians history can't you absolutely but yeah. with japan you, you didn't know where we would come from really because we didn't know what the rules were so who are your synthesizer heroes uh, growing up i mean you've mentioned eno and stockhouse and were there any sort of um powerful influences on your style and what you ended up doing there's i mean there's tons of great electronic artists but they're generally writing electronic music and they're usually solo artists you don't really hear electronic musicians within a group you hear keyboard players who play synthesizers within a group but not what i would call electronic um but in terms of what what people did with the synthesizers um i was quite a big fan of tom dolby actually um thomas dolby i think he had an album called um the flat earth and some of the programming on that is great it's really great um i love it when when a synthesizer player programs in an abstract way where they're actually programming environmental sounds and they're creating their own environment. Like Eno did that with African music. It's quite amazing. He did it with Roxy music. He created this whole battlefield with tanks and, and missiles and, you know, gunfire, all with the VCS3. Um, so I love that kind of approach. Um, and one, actually, another amazing album is uh, by Ruichi Sakamoto. It's called B2 Unit, and it was one of his first solo albums, and um, it was all done on a profit, all done on a profit five. And he was recording that while we were recording a Japan album, and so we looked in on his studio recording sessions quite often, and amazing, amazing programming. All the bass drums, snares, hi-hats, everything is profit. Um, That was very impressive. And um, even people like Joe Zawinul, um, in the jazz sense, he he would always play the sound as as it should be played, if you know what I mean. So he program and he was well into African music and world music as well. Um, so he'd program up these quite interesting reedy kind of synths that sounded quite like ethnic instruments. And of course, he'd he'd play play it the right way. Um, and I thought that's that's one of the most important things is, is is actually how you how you play something, how you play the sound. You mentioned Sakamoto there. Um, did you work very closely with him during your time with Japan? I, I can't because I'm trying to remember that how that all crossed over. And I know he worked with David. Yeah, he did. Um, not not really. It was more a case of he was making his album, we were making ours, and um, he uh, contributed, co-wrote one of the tracks. So he'd come in for the day and 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 did all his stuff probably in an afternoon. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very impressive, but. But he did use a terrible preset sound, the, the <laughs> quacking duck sound on the Prophet Five. Yes, yeah. So that's a crime in my book. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
you're well known for your use, um, particularly you know in the, the days of Japan of, of things like the Profit Five and the Oberheim, OBXA, and also those are you're you quite keen on the Roland System Seven Hundred as well. Do these instruments still figure highly in your work today? And of course, certainly with the the Profit Five and the Oberheim, they've had recent you know reissues from the actual companies themselves. I just wondered, you know, do they still figure in your work today? And what do you think of these new versions? Yeah, they do figure. Um, I don't have the Oberheim, unfortunately, um, but yeah, I mean the the Profit Five and the the Roland System Seven Hundred Lab Series, I've used on everything, every album I've ever made. Um, so yeah, they're right to the fore. Um, I like to have a, a kind of, uh, I don't know, a spectrum of, of, of different things. You know, I'm using a lot of new analog as well. Now there's a company called Dreadbox that make really nice little synths. And, um, I've got about three or four of those and I've been using those a lot. And the, the, the collaboration Roland did with, um, Studio Electronics, it's an yes. SEO2. Mm-hmm. I've got that just to my right, and I'm using that on stage, and it's it's really powerful. It's it's, it's fantastic. I love it. Um, great for programming, uh, as well as things like the V synth and classic, you know, virtual analog stuff. The Access Virus Indigo. I've got two of those. I love them so much. They're amazing. So it's a bit of everything, and of course, um, a lot of the synths in Reason as well. You've got a profit. You've got one of the, the new profits, I have haven't got you? The, the new, desktop yeah, version. Yeah. Yeah. How how are you finding that? Yes, it's great. It's great. I don't I I don't use any of the new features. I basically just want it to be the same as what I had. So I I don't like velocity on synthesizers and I don't really I kind of like aftertouch, but I just want it to be the same. Yeah, and I suppose that ties in with the fact that you don't consider yourself a traditional musician that things like velocity yeah. which are you know kind of key to a a um, a classic performance player true not be so important true i mean i like controllers i like to use controllers that's why i like the v synth so much because it's a huge amount of, of of control over the sound um but yeah with the profit i tend to use the wheel and i tend to use noise modulation rather than um pitch modulation what is your approach to sound design? Because that's obviously where you know you've spent a huge amount of your career doing. Do you just spend time, you know, coming up with patches and then just kind of add them to a, you know, a virtual type folder somewhere, and then I'll use those later on? Or do you create patches specifically for tracks as part of that kind of writing process of a song or an album? Mm, well, it's a little bit of both. Um, but the the thing I think my biggest influence in my approach to sound design was when I was a kid and I used to listen to the radio and it was a badly tuned radio and I'd be under the covers at night listening and you would get two stations at the same time combining. And often I would think that that was the same thing. I thought it was an amazing piece of music until I realised that that there was two things playing at once. So it all became about the context. And then sometimes I'd hear a lovely piece of music and there'd be a voice coming in. And I thought, oh, that's, that works so well. But of course, it was just coming from another station. And that was a big influence on me. Actual, actual kind of sound design to create a mood. And I guess we kind of heard that. I mean, I love sampling. So that whole thing with Brian Eno and David Byrne, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Great example of sampling. Uh, DJ Shadow in the 90s. Um, I love things that are taken out of context and, and, and placed into, into another environment. But going back to your, your, your question, um, I do often make sounds specifically for, for that piece of music, but, and it's usually based around the, the, the lyrics or the feeling that the, the track has given me. So you feed off that, that vibe. I do, I do. There's a track on the Porcupine Tree album, a new one uh, called Dignity, and um, it's... it's taken from a, a piece that I wrote. So I co-wrote it with Stephen. And um, once he'd written the lyrics and he presented the track back to me, I had the storyline. So then I could really elaborate even more. And it was kind of like a, the life of this person who became, ended up homeless. Um, and I took it right back to the early days of this person at school. So I created this whole playground environment. It's things like that, you know, um, Sometimes I, I latch onto just little phrases or words 
and and I'll kind of create a, a sound response to it. So imagine that you're stranded on a desert desert island and you want to do some sound design work. What's the one thing you always go to 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 do something? Is there a an instrument in your collection that you always go to start with maybe to create sounds? Mm, that's 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 interesting because I suppose you would have the widest range or palette of sounds on on, on possibly a, a more digital based synth, you know, like a more uh, thing that would have wavetables and would have kind of different shapers, and so so in a way you'd have more uh, scope. Um, whereas, of course, it's not as nice as pure pure electronic, um, you know, semi modular synth or, or um, but. Yeah, I think I would go for a, an all-in-one type thing where I could actually create music that had a wide sound palette, yeah, including percussion and all sorts of things. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, would that may, maybe be a sampler or something that possibly? I, I think this Access Virus Two is just amazing. I love it. Probably take something like that or the V synth. Coming back to sampling, because. Uh... Sampling is something I wouldn't have normally associated with some somebody like yourself. I've always seen you as the kind of the analog synth programmer. Um, tell me a little bit about your history with sampling. What you know, what tools were you using when you started, and, and what what do you use now? Well, I remember when we were doing Tin Drum, um, David was um, putting in samples into the tracks, and we were doing it via like a Walkman with um, like some traditional Japanese folk music or singing or uh and um we would have that gated so that every time you played a note on the keyboard it would trigger the sample that would be running and so obviously it's all about an accident and finding the the bits where it worked it's a lot of trial and error um but when you got it in the right place it was amazing because it's you're hearing this vocal and you're thinking i love it and how could that happen in any other environment? How you'd never have got that. So um, that we were doing it right back then, and then of course, as I mentioned, those albums as well that that I love. And um, most of my solo albums and the albums I made with Steve Jansen and Mick Khan, they all all have a large amount of sampling in there, a large amount of uh, external sound sources. Were you using any specific hardware or? Um, yeah, I. Instead of putting them into a sampler, I put them into the redrum. Okay, yeah. Randomly. So I'll have sort of 16 channels of, of different samples at different pitches happening at different times. And I'll just key in some basic, uh, I won't even think about the rhythm, I'll just key in a few you know, steps and, and then start running this. And you sort of st step back at that point and you start listening and you... you, you come at it more like a producer you think hang on that that was amazing what i just heard then and then you find what that was and then that becomes part of it so it's it's a lot of experimentation really but again it's starting from a from an abstract point if you put something in a sampler and you start playing the keys well you know what it's going to sound like so i i, I like to set these things in motion that kind of aren't me i mean i'm making them happen but I'm detaching myself from it. So it's kind of like a conscious decision of yours to make your instrument sound more organic and natural rather than inherently synthetic. Yes, although of late I've kind of, you know, I enjoy listening to very synthy music. You know, there's something very satisfying. I just think it's how, how it's used. But, um, yeah, I was never that type of player, I guess. I was never uh, went for those those kind of obvious sounds although they are they are very nice i do, I do like them you know like a, an album like blade runner a, a soundtrack like blade runner i mean it's it's as synthy as you can get but it's just such a beautiful sound mm. it's definitely a benchmark yeah, yeah. um so you, you mentioned redrum there which obviously is a component of uh reason yep um and uh in a recent video that i watched where you went through your rig um you you have some of the the hardware that you've mentioned, you know the profit and the the access viruses, and slap bang in the middle is a MacBook 
and you say, I'm running Reason, I use a lot of software instruments, mm. which pleased me greatly because I'm a big you know, Reason user, have been for many years, and I've known that you've used Reason in the past. I was delighted to see that that's still something you're into. So can you tell me a little bit about why you use Reason? What makes that stand out for you over and above some of the other tools that are out there? Well, I think it was a, I found something that worked for me uh, that helped my creative process. Um, and I wasn't, con I wasn't sort of concerned as probably my fellow music musicians are more with um, recording acoustic instruments, um, the technical side of it, the, you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't an issue for me. It was about being creative and being able to work in lots of different ways in sync and um, also now being able to record audio and also now being able to use third-party VSTs. Uh, and it works for me. I mean, they get a bad press, and, and rightly so, really, because they're quite happy to portray themselves as, as less than professional in a way. You know, it's uh, people look are a little bit snobbish as regards it, but um, I don't. Th I, I think they should use more examples of other types of musician, other kinds of composers. You know, after sort of um, twelve, thirteen years, they're still reverting back to this four to the floor kind of demos that people were making like twenty years ago. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, uh, and it's like a DJ thing, and it's just. I, I just think they they should get some some different people on board, really. But um, but anyway, that's not my concern. It works for me. I like it. Um, another thing I like is adding in apart from the samples. I like this grain table synthesizers, which are samplers as well. So you you can put in musical passages or, or vocals, and then you you start messing with the with the time and with the the whole structure. You're actually moving the molecules around the atoms into a different order. And that combined with the other samples as well takes you into otherworldly places. Do you use Reason as a sound design tool as well as a recording and sequencing environment? And what what's your sort of process? I do. I do. And um, again, it's, it, it's like trying to find the unconventional way of, of going about things. Like I, I, use the, uh, I use the graphic EQs as an effect, as filters for my sounds in real time. I love the fact I can record everything obviously in real time so you get all those control movements. Um, so often instead of using the filter on, on a sound, I'll use that because I can really pinpoint certain frequencies and bring out sounds that I probably wouldn't be able to with any type of step filter or ladder filter or whatever. So maybe, maybe basically it's using things for the wrong reasons, using the wrong things for the right reasons. <laughs> yeah, um, true. As I say, I, I use the, the drum machine for, for firing off samples and for, for triggering other, other synths. I use a pattern sequencer linked up to the grain table samplers. So, um, I'm giving myself random rhythms there that, that is creating these weird things. And then I'll, I'll, I'll use unconventional time signatures and then forget about it. So something might be in, instead of putting 24 steps, there'll be like 21 steps and you'll just get this overlapping where you're getting events that don't happen again. It's all about creating movement and it's going right back to what we said at the beginning of not being able to play proficiently Therefore, I try to make as much movement in the sounds as possible. Do you use Reason live as well as in the studio? I do. And is it for the same? Do you use it for the, in the same ways, or are you using it simply as a host, or do you use the sequences live? No, I don't. I don't use the sequences live. No, um, anything that's heavily sequenced, we we put onto back in um, because there's no point. There's no point taking up time on stage controlling sequences when you could be doing other stuff. Um, but yeah, I use it for a whole, a whole load of instruments. Uh, also, I like to divide things up along the keyboard. So it's really handy when you want to uh, produce a lot of kind of uh, textural changes and you, you can basically divide the keys up however you want. That, that's, that's a luxury. 
I mean, I could do a whole gig with it, I think, but I don't want to get too much into that because I, I like the physicality. And I don't like I don't like controllers with messing around with software. I, that that worries me. Live rig, mm. you've, you've mentioned the viruses um, yeah. and the the V synth as well, yeah. and uh, some of these you know little uh, tabletop modules. So we mm. you know call them that. Yeah. What sort of things have you got there? Because uh, you know, so I, I noticed the big keyboards, but you know you've got a table of stuff in front of you with effects and and you know small boxes. So what what are you what have you got there? Well, um, yeah, onto one side I've got like a tabletop. With um, there's a, a Nord Lead A1, which is just controlling the, uh, it's just controlling Reason, the laptop, just because I like I like the feel of it. Uh, it, it, it works well with it for me. Next to that, I've got the little Roland SEO2, the analog synth. I've got oh, this is interesting. Yeah, I've got the Loop Station, the Boss RC505. Yeah, uh, with um, five stereo loopers. I think it's about three hours, two and a half hours of stereo recording. I mean, that is really useful. So I, I can use that in different ways. I can bring anything from my rig into it and start building up a textural thing. Uh, I can have samples that I can trigger off from it. It's, it I can have things backed up to it. It's, it's really handy. Um, I, I, I use that a lot. Um, I've got the new Profit, the, the little desktop version, Profit 5 desktop version. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, an Indigo Virus, Virus 2, the V-Synth. Um, a workhorse kind of um, Nord Electro for the, um, you know, the Mellotrons and the pianos and organs, uh, different combinations. And... I realised because I couldn't get some of the same sound. I'm taking along the old JV twenty eighty, just because we're doing a few things from the past, and I kind of think I got the sound right at the time. So I, I just want to, you know, I want that there. Um, so you mentioned um, you're doing some of the the old tracks as well as the new tracks. When um, when do you start the tour, and what can we expect? to see in that show if you can talk about that yeah well well it's going to be a long show <laughs> uh, there'll be an interval um we'll play all of the new album not not in sequence but throughout the, the evening um and we'll focus on the other two albums that we feel are the strongest which is in absentia and um, fear of a blank planet but we'll also do older stuff as well um so a few selections of older stuff uh, and one or two things we've not played live before. So it'll be a bigger production. I mean, there, there won't be any gimmicks, but there'll be a, a bigger screen. There'll be, uh, obviously, a lot of these venues we're doing, they're, they're like indoor arenas, so it's the first time we've done this type, type of show, and when you go into them, they're just a, a box. You've got to build everything from the, the, the rigging to the... You've got to build the whole production and take that around with you. So we've got, you know, three buses, four trucks, a whole large crew, which we've never used to have. So we need to project. Um, so that's what we're going to do. But I think, I think the main thing is, is after all this time, I think people come in, uh, they want to see the band. So we're not going to blind them with some stage show or some, you know, kind of concept or storyline or whole, um, we'd like them to to be able to see us as a band and be able to connect with us. Is it just going to be the three of you playing, or will you be bringing in other musicians? We'll we'll, we'll have the same kind of lineup. So there'll be another guitarist, a backing vocalist, and a, and a bass player. So it will be the same as we had before, but 
Sure. Because Stephen's done a lot of the bass on this new album, hasn't he? He's done all of the bass. All of it, right. Okay. So obviously drafting somebody else in to do that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the whole album, it, although it has the PT Porcupine Tree DNA and it still sounds like us, it's very different for a, a number of reasons. And primarily, I think it's because Steve's playing bass. It, it, he plays in a totally different style to our previous bass player and he's a guitarist so he plays it like a guitar so it's more in the sort of chris squire geddy lee envelope i suppose more melody more aggressive um it's the first time that there's only been three people on the album there's no orchestrations there's no guest musicians that's different the tracks apart from one are all co-written that's new so it's a complete collaboration between the three of us and we made the album over a long period of time uh, for the first time in our careers without any pressure we didn't sign any contract to make this album nobody knew we were making this album and we knew that at any point we could throw it away and once you know that it frees you up beyond belief and it was so enjoyable doing that without a, a schedule, without uh, any pressure. So it feels very different for us. Was that brought about because of the pandemic? The fact that you you just had time to you know sit there and do this stuff without any commitments or external influences? Well, the pandemic speeded up the process. It made us finish off the album, basically. But the majority had been written over the previous eight to nine years. Oh, okay. So there's no, there's no concept to the album because each, some of the songs are 10 years apart. Um, but each song has its own story. That's why kind of the concept for us was, was the title of the album, Closure slash Continuation, and that's more about us. We don't know if it's going to continue or if it's the end. And you're free to make that choice. We're free that, to make that choice again. And there's no, yeah. we, why would we put pressure on ourselves? Yeah. Because, you know, Porcupine Tree has been on a hiatus for like 12 years, I mm. think, isn't it? And, you know, what, I mean, what was the spark to, to do this? You know, what, what prompted this desire to make another album? And was it an easy uh, choice to, you know, get back with Gavin and Stephen after so, so, you know, such a long time and, I, I, you know, I don't know if you guys you know, constantly kept in touch across those 12 years. We, we did. Um, we were kind of quite proactive on a, on a musical level and on a social level. So I wouldn't like too long to go by without saying hello to the guys or seeing them or going for a meal or a drink or sending them some music, whether the band was going to happen or not. So the three of us were, were fairly proactive on that. But I think it could only have happened after this period of time because when we finished Porcupine Tree, it wasn't a great, we, wasn't a great feeling. Um, we, we'd just been doing it too long, too much touring. Um, we should have had a break before then. So I think the friendship suffered. The music, I think, suffered. And I think it plateaued for the first time in our career. And I certainly didn't want to have that as the last Porcupine Tree album. Um, so it happened, it happened gradually um, over, over this period of time. And I think the fact that Stevens had like 10 years of uh, a solo career, that enabled him to draw a line between the two things. And he's kind of come to Porcupine Tree now, not as a control freak. Right. He's come to it as a collaborator. And that, that was really nice. One of the um, things that, Porcupine Tree certainly stood out for me was um, Stephen's adoption of using 5.1 mixes mm. in, in a number of the releases. Because I think, I can't remember which album it was, but it was, it was Elliot uh, Shiner in, in the US yep. did a version. Stephen didn't like it. So then went over and that kind of started the ball rolling. And of course, he's become um, almost like a household name for, for that kind of thing these days. The new album is in uh 5.1 and Dolby Atmos. Yeah. And I was just wondering um a how did you know how, how does that sound and b as a sound designer who is uh whose, whose main focus is creating soundscapes and evolving sounds does the the 5.1 and Atmos environment provide you with an even bigger canvas on which to paint and do you relish that? 
Well, I'll let you know when I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one not to have heard it in um, in surround or Dolby Atmos. All oh, right. Um, there was a there was a play it. There was a preview of it in London last night. I couldn't make it. Um, so. <laughs> Soho, so I'm, I missed out on that. But I'll get to hear it one day, and, and I'm sure I'll really enjoy it. I've listened to our previous 5.1 surround mixes. Um, I don't have a system set up for that. I, I don't know what I feel about it. I mean, it's great, you know, if, you're, if, if you can choose where you sit, it's fantastic. You, you choose the best seat in the room, and then you, you, you get the full effect of what it's for. If you move or you you go somewhere else or you just then then I don't see the point. Suddenly you've lost it. That's why I don't see the point of doing it live. I know Steve Stephen really wanted to do something surround for in, in the live sense, but we 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 kind of outvoted him on that because you you can't have somebody you know coming along and paying a hundred pounds for a ticket or something and and they're seated right next to one speaker and they're not getting no perspective of what the track's about. Yeah, yeah. And I saw him uh, on one of his solo shows at the Albert Hall, mm. and that was pre- uh, allegedly presented in quadraphonic. Yeah. But it's difficult to f- sort of understand how good or bad that was, given that the Albert Hall has such great acoustics anyway. I wasn't entirely sure how much it was giving to it or, or even taking away from it. But as as a, a musician that's recording, I, I'm guessing that, um, yourselves or maybe just Stephen on his own are always thinking about how this might translate into a, yeah. a larger, you know, multi-channel audio mix. Yeah. And so does that impact uh, the way that you record, the way that you compose? It does, totally. Um, we, we produce these albums together and the album is mixed as you go along. There is no mix. It's not like the old days where you'd go into a studio, pull all the faders down and you'd have nothing and you'd start from scratch. It's not like that. You, the mix is is something in development all the time, and you react to that. So it's it's a production decision. It's a musical decision. Once things start working well in context and they're in the right positions and you find that right position and that right frequency, well, then that's a keeper. And the next person who reacts to it does so with that in mind. And that's, that's kind of how I look at it, because being in a, in, in a rock band, I've always had to try to find the space. And on this album, there's far more space than, than previous, because Stephen has, has, has kind of disengaged the guitars. I mean, it's, he's down to one guitar, really. So there's none of this thick overdubbing and, and heavy riffing. Um, he's just he's in love with this Telecaster that he's using. And it's dynamic and it sounds great, but... But because there's just one of them, you can place it and it and it frees up so much space. So the mix is in progress. And at one day, the mix just, it just ends and you think the track's done. And of course, the, it's very cinematic. The whole porcupine tree sound is very widescreen. So it, it lends itself, obviously, to, to surround in all its forms. Of all the Porcupine Tree albums that have been, and we're going back, you know, mm. some way, where does the new one sit in your estimation of you know the best work mm. that you've done? Well, it's right up there. Um, I mean, I think we've all we all agree that In Absentia and Fear of a Blank Planet to date were the were, were the best two albums that we made, um, and this is along with those. We don't know yet whether this is our best or not. It could well be our best. Obviously, at the t- you, you feel stronger about that at the time you're making it and, and soon after. It will take a few years before you look back uh, and reposition maybe where, where this album goes. But I think we're all pretty confident that it's it's up there with the best work we've done. And the, you know, the title of the album suggests you know closure stroke continuation which is clearly what this album was about it was about drawing a line under those 12 years and now we're going to move forward and do this this work can we expect another porcupine tree album after this one or is that just you know dependent on the response you get or the feeling that you have after you've come off tour we really don't know we we really we're not playing any games here we we really don't know and we like the fact that there's no pressure 
Uh, we made this album under no pressure, so it would be silly to, to put ourselves under pressure. Um, if it's the last thing we do, then we'll, we'll be quite happy um, because we'd have made a great album and I think we'd have, we'd have ended up on a fantastic tour. And we've ended up with, with a kind of good friendship. All the things that we didn't have on the, you know, 12 years ago. So for me, that's, that's, I'd be happy with that. But on the other hand, if we find that there's something that we can do that's new, that we can keep the porcupine tree sound, but maybe widen the perimeter a little bit more. I mean, on this album, there's a few tracks that are pushing on the perimeters of what's, what is the porcupine tree sound. Stephen is now very interested in synthesizers and keyboards. That's, that's kind of his direction. Who knows? In maybe you know a couple of years, we might we might have some uh, new recordings. But with the mu music industry, you don't know. Maybe there are no more albums. Maybe people just release tracks now. I don't know. Because I was going to say the, the the freedom that you clearly now have and that you are clearly relishing mm. is born out of an industry that has changed dramatically since you first got into it. Where you were, you know, very much in in a uh, a machine, shall we say, a label and marketing and all that kind of stuff. Whereas nowadays, as a, an accomplished, successful musician, you have the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, put it out in whatever form you wish, and that freedom is 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 completely different to way it, the way it was before. Is that a good thing in your mind? I think we. We can't change our relationship with the album as as a presentation of a work. Uh, that to us is is kind of written in stone almost, and we're of that generation. You know, we're. I mean, I can't believe how lucky I am that I can go into a record shop and buy an album for ten pounds. You know, buy a work of art for ten pounds. For me, that's incredible. But for most people today, that would be a rip-off. I'm not paying that amount of money for music. So, no, we don't see it. We, we, we see it in the traditional sense that we, we need this format of an album to present a piece of work. You know, there's no compromise on that. But we're probably the last generation that are going to feel this way or, or possibly work this way. And, yeah, it does change a lot of things. It changes uh record sales now i mean chart positions are now determined as well as physical sales on streams so you know how many people listen to your album but they might have just listened to like 30 seconds or something you know it's it's funny because you, you mentioned that and clearly porcupine tree um are looking you're always looking to f release physically mm. as well as digitally yeah. which is which is admirable and, and and great and you know people of our generation will obviously welcome that yeah but it was interesting you know my, my children my daughter's uh 18 mm. and in the last couple of years she's got into buying physical products albeit cds yeah unlike her father who's got you know a big mm. vinyl collection but she she's buying cds and she appreciates the physicality of that and not just listening to the music, but you know, arranging them in a particular order and the cover art and all of this Brilliant. kind of stuff. Well, maybe so it's think, an inherent thing, you know. Maybe it might be, yeah, might be an, maybe, an influence. Yeah, maybe yeah. that 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 will never quite go away. I, I mean, it's not that we don't like new artists, you know. I mean, uh, we're 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 massive Taylor Swift fans. We like Harry Styles. We, I mean, they're making great music. You know, these are like, important artists. But they're likely to just drop a, an album out of the blue. You yeah, know what I mean? It's yeah. not a traditional thing. It's not then things work in a different way now. Um, but I still think there's there's always going to be great music out there and great artists. It's just it's just how how the public um, consume that. And at the moment, obviously, the direction it's going in is that music is an accessory to their lives. For us, it was our life. You know, that I could quite happily sit at home and listen to three albums. Uh, who has the patience to do that now?
what do you think of the uh, reissue business? Because ob- obviously with vinyl making a big comeback in recent years, um, there's been a, a clamoring to reissue, you know, albums from the past and you know japan have had uh you know quiet life just not long ago was released in a super deluxe edition set you know what what are your thoughts about you know reissuing old content and adding in those extra tracks and uh putting it into new packaging yeah i'm not sure about the extra tracks i've always been a bit i I, i'm a bit of a stickler for the for the album and and that's the piece of work and um I love reissues because I, I buy this. I buy the same albums again and again. Yeah, you know, I'll end up with five or six copies of the same album. But, but I love the fact that the packaging is is there's more quality to it now. You know, the reissues used to be quite um, it was arbitrary as to the quality you'd get, but but now some of them are fantastic. Um, and of course, being somebody who got rid of all my vinyl, I oh, know. Yeah. You know, in the eighties, probably. Um, I'm now on a quest to sort of at least get my top hundred albums back on vinyl, so I'm enjoying buying these things. I'll listen to the, I'll listen to high res, though of it. You know, I'll get the code and download it and listen to that. But, um, but just having the album there is just fantastic. So yeah, I'm all in favour of it. Moving back to music technology, what excites you? today you know what products that are you seeing be it hardware or software that really give you that kind of buzz that you got maybe say in the early days when you were first discovering that you know that micromog or you know the profit five is there anything that really you know makes you very excited for the future of electronic music technology that's yeah that's that's really difficult i i i used to have endorsement uh with roland uh, for I, I, with the V-Synth, I was involved in that whole uh, programming and um, and then promoting it. And, and I went to Japan and I spoke to the the head guy there. Oh, uh, Kakahashi. Oh, of course, there he is. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and um, he probably says the same to everyone. But he he, he asked. He said, "What do you think the future is of you know?" <laughs> and I got very tongue tied, and I couldn't. I was trying to explain how I felt that if these instruments could be played physically in a different way than resorting to the keys as we know them, then I thought there would be possibilities for making a new, new kind of sounds mm. and a new, a new sort of forms of music that, that you wouldn't get without that theory. But it got very deep and I didn't know and I, I got a bit confused and I was thinking of like gel pads and sort of things that your fingers would would immerse into and it all became a bit you know in the end you realize you've just got a rubbish idea probably (laughs) well you say that i mean you're talking about gel stuff mm. there's this controller by roly called the seaboard which is that kind of it's kind of gel and Mm. it it transmits mpe so you can get really expressive so maybe that was kind of what you were thinking I, I, i like that where you take the keys out of the equation Mm. You know, and, and some composers used to write music in a different way, didn't they? They used different yeah. diagrams and, and symbols. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of like the way of composing in in a more abstract way or creating your own table of of, of scales or, or, or events. I'm not sure, but there's lots of, there's lots of interesting uh, products without keys. You know, these kind of pads and different... That they always interested me, and I wonder whether that could be taken a stage further. But no, I mean, you tell me. Have you heard something that's that's vastly different recently? No, and that's one of the things I often have conversations with people about. Back in the 1980s and the 1990s, there was a lot of innovation. It seemed that every two or three years, maybe less, sometimes a little more, there was a, a big leap. You know, we went from analog um, synthesizers to digital synthesizers be it fm Mm. or wavetable then we had sampling Mm. and then we had um uh, physical modeling and there were leaps and bounds in the 90s in that regard and then all of a sudden everything just became very bland and sample based and you know many big powerful synthesizers just relied very heavily on a huge amount of samples 
and it seems to it seemed to stagnate for a number of years. I think we're seeing a lot of more innovation today mm-hmm. than we've done before, um, but it's all always in different you know uh, paradigms. Um, you know, maybe it's a touch sensitive keyboard, maybe it's something that's screen based, maybe it's you know something on an iPad. Um, but there doesn't seem to be. Th- Maybe it's just because I'm an old man. It doesn't seem to be those kind of leaps and bounds. It's a very yes. slow yeah. process. But no, I, I don't know. And personally, I, there are a number of things that you know are very interesting to me. But whether they're the next big thing, I often try to think, you know, what's that next big step? I mean, AI is something that gets often talked about. I don't know. What are your thoughts on artificial intelligence within mm. music generation? I heard a song made purely with AI, and it was fascinating. <laughs> it, I really liked it. Um, it. It had melody, but it didn't make sense. Right. It wasn't used in the way that <laughs> you couldn't predict what was going to happen next. And that's an interesting part for me, that the boring part of AI is, I was talking about this with Stephen Wilson, and he, he, he said to me, he thinks that soon we're going to get to the point where you're just um, you come home from work and you're you're switch on your machine and you're you're say can I have um, can I have an Elvis Presley type of um, moody song but with uh, sung by Freddie Mercury and that's exactly what you'd get because they'd have every component they need to make the thing you want. Scary. It, it's kind of scary, and I mean we've got concerts already, haven't we? Where you're getting virtual like holograms and um so i suppose artificial is 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 going to be the big word isn't it i mean is there going to be uh is artificial going to be a good thing yeah who knows who knows less realism (laughs) (laughs) and on that depressing note um Richard, it's been an absolute honour to speak with you. Thank you ever so much for, for your insight and the best of luck with the, uh, the new album and the tour. Thank you very much. Good questions. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. Before you go, make sure you visit the Sound on Sound podcast page at soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts where you can explore all the other great content playing across the other channels. I'm Rob Puricelli, and this has been a failed Muso production for Sound on Sound.